You're listening to audio from Risen Life Fellowship. If you'd like to learn more about our church or donate to this ministry, please visit risenlifefellowship.com. We're given these proverbs. Oh, hey, I just got louder. Um, But we're given these proverbs uh, because God is the only one who really knows what is best for us, right? And so we have to trust him. Um, God speaks to us through his word, and it is the, uh, the, uh, um, the truest truth. It's a thing that, uh, that can guide our lives. Um, we looked at how good it is for us to think about the end of our lives, how to think about what's coming next, what's coming at the end. We thought about how that helps us to think about the hard things, to see uh, the, the, the things that we can learn from the hard things in life. We let it inform our relationships. We learn to think about not just our death, but the, the death and the resurrection of Christ and the hope that that gives. We talked about holding desperately to Christ when temptations and hardships come. Uh, we lo- talked about being patient, uh, both with our circumstances and with each other. Uh, we saw that money's not necessarily a bad thing if it's used wisely in accordance to the way that God has designed it to be. And we ended up talking about our inability to change uh, that which God has already ordained to happen. And I want to start back there again today because I didn't like giving it the end of the sermon just a little short thing. I think it deserves a little bit more than that. So what we're going to do is we're going to be in Ecclesiastes today. We're going to be in verses, uh, or chapter 7, verse 13 through 29. And let's stand up for the reading of God's word. says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep. 
very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes from her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found out, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. You guys can be seated. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this day, and I thank you so much for allowing us to come together to worship you and to learn from your word, God. I pray that you will speak through me today. I pray that you will uh, um, let us all learn from your word today, God. I pray that you'll give us wisdom and understanding. And I pray that this won't just touch our minds, Lord, but I pray that it will touch our hearts and we'll come to understand your word much more deeply and come to love you more and more, God. Lord, I pray that you'll give us all hearts uh, of worship towards you today, God. And I pray this all in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So like I said, we're going to start back in verse 13. And when we talked about this before, we talked about how um, we talked about, sorry, I just had a, had a moment there. We talked about how um, there is crookedness in this world, how um, Jesus is the only one who can make straight that which is made crooked, how we can't fix the curse, right? We can't fix this curse that, that, that is on us. And we also talked about Job. We talked about how he said, um, he said, God gives and he takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. And I want to focus in on that today, how we can look at the hard things in life and still say, blessed be the name of the Lord. How we can still say we can trust him. So as we look at this, it says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? And I think that there's a lot of people who say that this world's pretty crooked, right? There are people who say, especially those who don't know God, how can God be good when my, my mom just died? Or when uh, this person over here, who I, all I've seen is good in their life, experiences this horrible hardship? or suffers in this uh, hard way, or even sometimes we're suffering, and we're saying, God, what did I do to deserve this? What's going on? How can God be good when there's so much evil in the world? And it says right here, I mean, we're going to, there's uh, a day of adversity. I mean, there's going to be days that are hard. And the Bible doesn't shy away from this question. A lot of Ecclesiastes really emphasizes this. It talks about how well there, there's this evil over here. There's this evil under the sun. And Solomon is always talking about these evils under the sun. 
but we as Christians can take comfort knowing that God's in control. Romans 8.28 says, For those who know God, or who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. But how can, how can this be when, 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 we, when we just look and we see all this crookedness in the, in the world? And what I want to do is I want to take three examples from Scripture and look at how God takes evil and crookedness and, and the day of adversity and, and turns them to, to good. And we'll start right with somewhere really close to home for Solomon, uh, his father. David was the, the, the epitome of kings in, in Israel, right? He was known as a man after God's own heart. When Saul was chasing after him, we didn't see a lapse of faith. We saw him just draw nearer to God, nearer to God the entire time. David loved God, and we see it so clearly in the Psalms. But yet, there was the situation with Bathsheba. And we'll do a quick recap on that. So David, he's on his rooftop. He's not going to war where, where the king ought to be at this time. And he sees this woman, and he discovers that she's the wife of one of his most trusted men. One of, one of his thir- 30 mighty men. Like, this wasn't just some, some, some guy. Like, this was one of his closest people. Well, he sees her. He finds out who she is, and he sleeps with her. He tries to cover it up. He invites Uriah down, and he says, hey, you know, just go hang out with your wife for a little bit. And he won't do it because he's too honorable to go down and, um, and too loyal to his men and to David to go to his wife when everyone's at war. And keep in mind, David is also at, at home now when he ought to be at war. So David gets him drunk and tries again, and, it's, and he still won't go down. This guy, even when his wits aren't even with him, he's still loyal. This is one of David's closest soldiers. So he orders this, this foolish military procedure that ends up getting Uriah killed along with some other people killed. And then David takes Bathsheba as his wife. This is evil, right? Like, this is messed up. This is wrong. This is crooked. But, but yet, God, as wise as he is and as good as he is, still chooses to use David to, or uses David and Bathsheba to give birth to Solomon. When Solomon was bored, the first thing that it says after that is, and God loved him. God uses Solomon to build the temple. Solomon writes a significant portion of the Old Testament. He writes Song of Solomon, a good part of Proverbs, and at the very least, he was the inspiration, if not the writer of uh, the majority of Ecclesiastes. Not to mention, he's in the line of Jesus. And David's not left without discipline. And God's not unjust in this. I mean, Jesus died for David's sin. 
God says, I'll put away your sin. And the only way he's able to do that justly is through the death of Christ. But God used even this awful situation to bring good, because he is that good. Let's look at Joseph. My small group has been going through Genesis, and we've been talking about Joseph for the last few weeks. So his brothers throw him in a pit, and then they start discussing what they're going to do with him. I can imagine you probably could overhear this conversation. Are they going to kill him? Are they going to sell him? Um, and ultimately, they decide to sell him to his cousins. So his cousins don't even help him out, the, the Ishmaelites. Well, David, still faithful to God, he gets wrongly accused of immorality with his new master's wife, and his master sends him to prison. And when he's in prison, he helps one of um, the fellow prisoner out, the, the chief cupbearer. He interprets a dream for him and says, hey, just, just, just tell Pharaoh about me. Just, just put in a good word. And, and, and he forgets about him. This is another crooked, evil, messed up situation that came as no surprise to God. It was prophesied that Israel would have to go to Egypt, which is what eventually comes of this. It is David's brothers. Got something my there we go. David's brothers come to Egypt looking for food during this famine. And long story short, they end up having to bring their whole family in. Um, and thousands of people are rescued. That entire region geographically was rescued because of, of this situation. And this wasn't a surprise. It says, the Lord said to Abraham, this is Genesis 15, 13. It says, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and will be afflicted for 400 years. Israel's suffering in Egypt wasn't a surprise to God. And Joseph actually says that, you know, his brothers didn't send him to Egypt. That's absurd. What do you mean his, his brothers didn't send him to Egypt? What does that mean? But his words were this. This is Genesis 45, 5 through 8. It says, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the, the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which, there will be, in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, to keep you alive, or to keep alive for you many survivors. So it is not you who sent me here, but God. He made me a father to Pharaoh, and lord of all his house, and the ruler over all the land of Egypt. The situation was messed up. It was wrong. It was crooked. Joseph's probably saying, what's going on? But he chose to trust God in the midst of this, even when he's looking at a situation that's just, just, just hard and wrong and evil and messed up. Now we'll look at 
I think the uh, best example of this is, is, is in Jesus on the cross. While Jesus was on earth, his love for us was returned with hatred. When Jesus healed people and did good for them, the Pharisees looked at that and they said, we, we've got to kill this guy. When Jesus healed the ten lepers, only one came back to thank him. When he healed a man who was unable to walk, he used those newly working legs to walk to the Pharisees and say, oh yeah, it was this guy, it was this guy. His brothers discouraged him. He was abandoned by those who he was closest to at his hardest moment. And, and, and the greatest evil that ever had occurred where, where man killed God, it happened on the cross. But I, I don't think there's any one of us in here who wish that didn't happen. That, that's our entire salvation right there. First song that we sang, we said, where would I be if, if not for the cross? I'll be honest, I teared up when I was uh, thinking about this earlier. It's just, how, where, where will we, we be? Jesus, in the greatest evil that ever happened, God turned it to be the greatest good. And I think by looking at this, we can say we can trust him. And by the way, this wasn't God's backup plan. We can say that God has a plan. Because God planned this, it says, from the foundation of the world. Revelation 13.8 says Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world, meaning it was planned before the fall occurred. But God used this situation. He uses the hard situations in our lives and the, 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 uh, our suffering to, to lead us and guide us towards him, to learn to trust him more because he is good and he is the ultimate good. We can trust him. And there are several places in the Bible where it says that, that this was planned beforehand. And I want to make it clear that God's sovereign over our lives. He didn't make these ha- things happen. He wasn't like holding people like a, like, a, like a puppet, you know, to make David commit adultery and murder. He didn't make Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. And he didn't make man kill God. But he, like a, a, a master chess player, orchestrated it so that every move the enemy made against him, he knew how to turn it to good. Our God is this wise and this good and this loving. He's so good to us. And because of that, we can look at verses like verse 14 here, where it says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. We can rejoice. In the day of adversity, consider, God made this one as well as the other, so that man may not find anything that will be after him. When we see the righteous man perish in his righteousness, as it says in verse 15, we can say that God is still good, because Jesus, the righteous man, perished in his righteousness. And when we see the wicked man prolong his life through his evil doing, 
we can say there's going to be a judgment and that God's still good and we can trust him. So let's not become envious of the arrogant. No, God is good in all of our circumstances. And when things get hard, we ought not try to control them by our own means. And that's going to lead us to our next point. Um, C.S. Lewis, in his Chronicles of Narnia, was always saying Aslan, who's supposed to be the, the, the kind of Narnian version of Jesus, like a picture of, of Christ. Um, he's always saying he's not a tame lion. That's how God is. He's not tame. We can't control him. And I think that it's a good thing that he put that in there so often. Because that's so often what we want to do, right? Things get hard, and we want to take control. We want to say, okay, God, I, I know that you're, you're in control over here, but I, 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 I want to reach out, and I want to, I, want, I want to do what I can to make this right. but that's not how God works. We can't argue with God and say, why are you doing this to me? And we, we know that he can be trusted. But what do we do to try to control God? And I think that's what this is talking about. It says in verses 16 through 18, Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this. For, and from that, withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. And this is a confusing passage. We look at this and we go, but, but be not overly righteous. Well, God says, be holy as I am holy. What? How can you be overly righteous? If God's perfection, and I know that the chasm between my righteousness and his holiness, and his righteousness is so big, can't I be as righteous as I want to be? Yeah? I say that we ought to be as righteous as we can be. And we'll come back to that in a second. Because the rest of this, I mean, it seems to make a lot of sense. I mean, it says wisdom. Uh, it, from chapter 1 in, in verse 18, it says, In much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So I guess by reason of, uh, uh, b- b- logically, if we keep moving towards wisdom and greater wisdom, I guess we're going to increase in vexation and sorrow. Okay, So I guess that will lead to destruction in a sense. And of course, wickedness, I mean, you run with those who are lawless, they might be lawless towards you. <laughs> if you run with those who commit murder, you're in danger. <laughs> in foolishness, we know that can lead to death. I mean, if we, <laughs> if we don't t- take care of our finances, we're going to run out of money. If we run out of money, we starve. If we don't think about our consequences, they're going to catch up to us. So the rest of this makes a whole lot of sense, but what is this, be not overly righteous? And there's some disagreement among the commentators on this. 
So, but I want to give the best explanation I found. And if you have a better explanation, I'd appreciate it. But I think this is, I think this is what it's talking about here because it really fits the context. I think it's talking about don't make righteousness a means by which you can control God. Because so much of this right here, in this section right here, is talking about, well, God's done things this way. We can't, we, we, we can't make uh, straight what God has made crooked. What God has done, we can't change. If it's a day of adversity, it's a day of adversity. God has made one as well as the other, and we can't necessarily change that. Of course, we can work in our lives so that we can, uh, there, there's natural consequences But we ultimately can't control the unknowns. And God, with what we do and by our own righteousness, we can't say, well, God, I did A, B, and C, therefore you owe me this. Well, God, I've been, I've been really good, so you need to take care of me. No, it says the righteous man, he may perish in his righteousness. And the wicked, he might actually prolong his life through his wickedness. By our own righteousness, we cannot make God do and make God take care of us in a particular way. He is the only one who knows what's best for us. And I think that when we do that, what we're doing is we're falling into this, this legalism that is such a, a scourge on the church. Galatians, it says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Having been made perfect by the Spirit, are you trying to perfect yourself by the flesh? Or having begun by the Spirit, are you trying to perfect yourself by the flesh? We can't influence even God's final judgment on us by our own righteousness. It doesn't work. And I think that if we think about these things in terms of trying to control God, all the other ones also make sense. Don't be, try to be so wise. Don't try to outsmart God. Don't try to say, well, if I do A, B, and C, if I do everything the right way, if I try to live this life in, in according to the, the, the best books on finances, the, the, the best books on, on morality, the, if I try to live things the best way, no, you're still subject to chance, and you're still subject to the unknowns in life. Well, if I can't control it by my own righteousness, and I can't control it by my own wisdom, why don't I try to control it by doing what's contrary to God? Well, if I tell the truth right here, you know, it, it, it might cost me something, so I'm going to lie, and I'm going to make myself more comfortable. but we forget that God's ultimately in control, that there is going to be a judgment, that even if we prolong our life through wickedness, there's a judgment day coming. And, we, and I think uh, uh, it talks about being foolish here, either be a fool. We could just ignore it all, just shut off our mind, not think about it, and that doesn't help either, because we still have to deal with reality. We cannot control God by any means, but we can trust him. 
I think this is what it means by it's good that you should take hold of this and from this withhold not your hand, meaning pay attention. The one who fears God shall come out from both of them. If we recognize the power and the wisdom and the greatness of God, if we recognize the distance between our righteousness and his righteousness, the gap between our wisdom and his wisdom, we learn to fear him. And by fear here, we mean to be in this respectful awe of him, to respect the huge chasm between his power and ours. And that brings us to our final point, that we have all, all fallen short of the glory of God. See, part of the reason we can't control God by our excessive, obsessive uh, uh, focus on righteousness or, or wisdom is because even the greatest of, of us, even the most righteous person, has sinned. Romans 3 talks about this. I want to look at 10 through 18, and I want to jump to 23. It says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. And it goes on to say in verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what this passage does is it pulls from several Old Testament passages to drive home this point that is made right here in Ecclesiastes 20, or 7.20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. There's a huge chasm between our righteousness and God's righteousness. And it's only by the mercy and grace of God that we can experience eternal life. So my first, that was my first sub-point, that all have sinned. The second is that in the midst of this, how does this, how does this affect our relationship with other people? Well, we, we, we have to learn to forgive. We have to learn to overlook people's sins. Let's look at verses 21 through 22. It says, Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows how many times you yourself have cursed others. And for a while, I looked at this and I said, well, wh where did this come from? This doesn't fit. Like, we're, we're talking about, okay, so, so we've got all have sinned, everyone has sinned, and, and then we got this, and then we've got all this I've tested by wisdom. It looks like he makes a little jump there. 
But I don't think that that's what he's trying to do. I don't think he's making a jump. Do not take to heart all the things that people say. When we hear what other people say about us, and we experience, oh, well, this person said this thing behind my back, and I happened to hear it, and that really hurt. We want to take the high seat and say, well, that person is a horrible person, horrible friend. They don't love me. They don't care about me. And I don't care about them now. But then the second part, it says, but your heart knows how many times you yourself have cursed others. See, when we do that, when we take that high seat and we say, I have been hurt, and you, you're in the doghouse now. We forget that we're not perfect either. When we think about our own sin, it's really hard to hold other people's sin over them. And I think that's what it's talking about here. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who, never, who does good and never sins. I think this is an example. And I think that we can take this example and we can extrapolate it to other areas of our life. We can, we can generalize it. Because at some point, we're going to have a brother or a sister uh, within our, our, our church body. And by that I mean, when I say church body, within the church, universal, within our Christian fellowship, that's going to do us some kind of wrong. And it may have been intentional or it may have been unintentional. But Proverbs says it is the glory of a person to overlook a wrong. It says that love covers a multitude of offenses. Does that mean it doesn't hurt? It does still hurt. But if we, if we are guarding our hearts in wisdom, if we are thinking about the fact that, you know, I, I've also sinned against people, I, I think I can overlook this. I think that's what it means by getting a heart of wisdom you're, you're able to overlook sins because you recognize that you yourself are no better. And since we know about the gospel, I think we can take it even further than that. In Matthew 18, it has a parable about two servants. One of them owes this astronomical, ridiculous, huge debt I looked it up, it was something like thousands of years worth of wages, like debt-wise. We're talking like millions or billions or something, like crazy. And then the master looks at me and says, you know what, I'm going to forgive your debt. Well, that servant, he turns around and he starts to beat a fellow servant, throws him into prison, because he owes like something like 10,000, like a third of a year's wages. That's not little, that's not a small amount of money. But compared to what he just got forgiven of, that's nothing. And that's what we do when we hold our sins 
or hold other people's sins against them within our body, within the Christian fellowship, even within the, the world. Because God died for them too. Well, that person hurt me, so I'm not going to share the gospel with them. What? They killed Jesus. No, we have to learn to put things into perspective that we were forgiven such a huge debt. Because there's not one of us who's without sin. And we all deserve judgment from a righteous, holy God. And I think that we also have to remember how dark and evil our sins are. And that's the next point. Next sub point. It goes on to say, all this I have tested by wisdom. And he's referring to what we just talked about. But it was far from me. Solomon's saying, it's hard for me to understand all, all these things. Because these things are deep. That which it has been is far off and deep. Very deep. Who can find it out? See, he's kinda, he, it's like he's kind of digging... Like, deeper and deeper and deeper. And he keeps using this word deep, and he wants to find things out and understand them. He goes on to say, I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolish foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. He keeps talking about Solomon just digging, and he wants to know. He wants to understand. And he says he turns to try to understand not wisdom this time, because that's what we've been going through in the rest of chapter 7. We've been trying to understand wisdom and knowing what way does God want us to go. And we, we, we get somewhere. We start to understand something, because God has made this world orderly. But then when he turns to seek out and understand wickedness and, and, and foolishness and madness, he says, which my soul has sought repeatedly. This is in chapter, or verse 28. But I, I have not found. He says that he, he can't understand it. And there is something confusing in here. You know, I, I've struggled with it uh, as I've been trying to understand this passage. It, it keep, keeps talking about this, this woman. And he says, uh, and a woman among all these I've not found. And I, I, sought so, or I found something more bitter than death. A woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. And what is this saying? Is it saying that men are superior to women? No, it's not. It's not saying that at all. I think it's talking about uh, a concept that Solomon gives us in Proverbs. And again, this is another thing. If you can come up with a better explanation, that would be, that'd be spectacular. But I think that this makes a whole lot of sense. 
It says in Proverbs 9, 14 through 18, The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes up a seat in the highest places in the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead. De- let's try this again. He does not know that the dead are there, that their guests are in the depths of Sheol. It's talking back in Ecclesiastes. It says he seeks to know wickedness and folly and foolishness and, and madness. And if this is talking about this, this section is talking about Lady Folly, then it's saying that these things are, are seductive, like it says in Proverbs. She's calling out. She's saying, come here. And I think we all know that's how sin is. Sin's always saying, hey, I'm, I'm here. Look at me. But then looking back at Ecclesiastes, it says that the, this, this lady, Folly, who, who's identified with wickedness and, and madness, it says her hands are, are, are who, whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. She's saying, come in. I look good. I'm here. You should hang out with me. But at the end of that, that leads to death. Right? But it says that he who pleases God escapes from her, but the sinner is taken by her. Our only defense against sin is the grace of God. I think another way we can describe this is, is to think about in, uh, in, in Greek mythology, there's these sirens. And this is, this is something that's often been used to, to compare to sin. But they, they sing these, these sweet, beautiful songs and the sailors go by, they hear him, and they say, I want to go check that out. It seems good. And when they get there, the sirens, they kill him. And there's a song about this that you guys should check out. It's called Sirens. It's by Gray Haven. But it kind of describes it um, as, you know, I, I went to go take out my sword, you know, and it was just... But I just want to listen just a little bit more. I just want to listen just a little bit more. That sword being the word God. It's so easy to get trapped and ensnared by sin. And it's so seductive. And it calls and it says, come, come on. I I seem so good. But we have to hold desperately to God looking to the gospel, looking to Christ as the one who can deliver us. If we look at verse 29 here, 
it says that God is not the one who created evil. But man has sought it out. See, we started off in consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? It doesn't make sense. This verse right here, 29, doesn't make sense in that one if God is creating evil. No, it says that God created us to be upright. But by our own volition, in our own free will, we set out and we chose evil. And yet, the Bible says that God loved us enough to die for us. See, we live in a crooked world, and we need a God that we can rely on. We need a God who loves us, who's not only, not only loves us, but who's powerful enough to save us, and who loves us greater than our, 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 our evil, our, our wicked hearts could ever deserve. We need a God who is his very nature to love. So we can trust God in his sovereignty, in his goodness, in his uh, control over the world because he proved his love for us. So no matter what's going on in our lives, we know that he loves us and he's in control. And you know what? We ourselves are crooked. I mean, the last sermon we ended with talking about who, who can fix the curse. We need someone who can fix the curse. Because otherwise we're going to get ensnared by this lady folly. But Jesus, he died on that cross. And as we look to him, he, he gave us his own divine nature. We looked at how we can be petty with these things. How, how wicked it is for us to look at our, our brother's sin or our sister's sin or even the world's sin and, and refuse to forgive. Now, does that mean that we just ignore things and, and just cover it over? No, I think the Bible speaks to reconciliation in a different way. I think that there has to be communication there and there are guidelines towards reconciliation. But forgiveness choosing not to hold their sin against them. When we do reconcile and we do talk about it, we, we can't refuse to do that. Jesus even goes as far as to say, if you do not forget of others, you will not be forgiven. And because of our, our sins are just so dark, we need this Savior. So I want to ask you, and the band can go ahead and start heading up. Do you guys know this, this Savior? Does everyone here know him? Because if we don't, we're going to have that judgment that we've, we've talked about a few times here. The evil in our, our lives and in our hearts, it, it, it has to be made right. 
because our God is judge. He is going to take the crooked world and he's going to deal out judgment to make it straight because he is a good judge. And a good judge can't just throw sentences out the window. So if you don't know him, I want to invite you after the service um, or now during this time of prayer to pray and say, God, I need you. I need you to help me. I need you to work in my life, and I need to be saved. And for the Christians in here, I want to ask, are you trusting in the the seductiveness of sin? Are you believing that lie? Because if we are believing that lie, we're not believing the the truth of the gospel. And of course, we're all going to fall into sin. Because there's not a righteous man on earth who, who does good and never sins. But that's not an excuse to deny who God is and to give in and, and, and just give ourselves to it. No, we give ourselves to God because those who are in Christ cannot continue in sin. That's what First John says. So what I want to do is I want to give us some time to just come to God in prayer and seek him, and to trust him with our sins. Because you know what? We can't make ourselves righteous before God. The righteousness that he imparts to us does not make us righteous before God. The things that we do after we're saved, it's, it's, it's no better at saving us than the things that we did before we're saved. It's only the grace and the mercy of God that can save us. And it's only his righteousness, not what we do, but his righteousness that changes our hearts and will ultimately be the only thing that will will pass on judgment day. So I want to give us some time to just pray. Uh, And then the the band will uh, sing a song and... um, and then they'll pray for us.